and and we see the trend now uh, and and certain markets in the US have shortage of supply so it's much easier to track the supply side than it is the demand side. The demand side shifts pretty fast. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Uh, salted caramel. Just love it. Okay. Okay. Now you, you're working in and out of the city, New York City. Um, if we're in New York City, do you have a favorite gelato ice cream shop that you typically go to that we could check out? So actually my favorite gelato place is, is my friends. It's actually in Inglewood, uh, right next to New York. Uh, and they have the best ice cream in the world. I love it. I love it. You want to give it a shameless plug? What's the name of it? Uh, it's uh, Blanco Nero ice cream. They're good. Okay. All right. Well, we'll check it out. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So we're focused mostly on deploying capitals through our uh, debt funds, our close-end debt funds. Well, we provide bridge acquisition, condo inventory, construction, mostly on residential, mostly in New York City, although we, we do um, provide loans in any major gateway city in the U.S. Um, we also have a robust activity of uh, providing loans in the healthcare senior housing space. Um, and that's been keeping us busy for the last five or six years. Um, you know, I founded the firm in 08 and we had a lot of evolutions, but the last six years have been definitely heavily focused on the lending side. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, founding a firm in 2008 was an interesting time in the real estate sector. Take us back there. Where did your real estate journey begin? There is almost my mistake. I mean, I, I served six years in the Navy as a captain, uh, and got out of it, enlisted to all law school, uh, and figured out I don't want to finish um, my uh, law degree by the age of 29 and have uh, zero experience. So I started out um, in my first year of, in law school just working as a driver slash secretary for a, for a businessman, attorney, accountant that did a lot of investments, mostly for South African nationals. And he kind of taught me the ropes uh, and showed me the real estate world. Unfortunately, he passed away very suddenly. Uh, and at the age of 55 and after he passed away, some of his clients asked me to help them out, which I did, you know, selling some properties, small scale, scale stuff. And then one of them introduced me to their family office, I ended up joining that family office and, and founded the Northwind, which managed the real estate fund for that family office in 08. So uh, we started buying in 08, uh, a lot of uh, distressed debt secured mostly by grocery anchored shopping centers in the Southeast. A lot of public anchored centers in Florida, Kroger's, AGB, that kind of stuff. They were, you know, we were buying it not even from the banks. We were buying it from special servicers after the banks that held the mortgages kind of failed as well. So it was very interesting time where we could buy, you know, loans, first mortgage loans on 20, 30, 40 cents on the dollar. So take us back there because we're we're recording this in early 2023. Um, the news of SVB just hit last week, and um, it's an interesting time right now in the real estate market and in the banking sector. How were you able to find a pipeline of distressed debt? Let's just start there, I guess. Back in 08? Yes. Listen, it was a very different time than now. We were liquid. We had a fund that we just raised, uh, and there was a true liquidity crunch across the board. Um, 
you know, some of these deals were the only ones bidding and we were, we were like asking ourselves, are we the only idiots buying, right? Uh, what are we missing? Uh, and now it's very different. There's a ton of liquidity out there still, uh, across the board. Uh, and so it's a very different environment. Although I did on, on Thursday and Friday, I did have some flashbacks. A lot of things started, started to sound similar. Right, uh, bank shutting down, FDAC kicking in. People are unsure about their deposits, but but it's not the same scenario as always. Not at all. The banks are much much healthier. Their balance sheets are healthier in general. How do you view then uh, the idea of what happened with SVB? So, from my understanding, they bought long duration treasury bonds, and when folks come to came to liquidate their deposits, essentially they had to fire sale those long duration at a loss. How are you viewing uh, regional banks overall from that standpoint? Listen, it's all a game of trust, right? And if you took the balance sheet of SVB and you took the balance sheet of Signature and looked at it on Thursday and Friday, you would have not have said, okay, this bank is going under. Uh, you said, okay, they might take a loss, uh, but they'll survive. But I think these two occurrences are the first true run on the banks that was inspired by Twitter and WhatsApp, and it's spread so fast. We're living in an age where, where data and information spread so fast. And it used to be that I run on the bank, you have to physically go to the bank. Now you just, you know, press a button. So I think the social media aspect of it, the way I, I was, I, I began getting texts uh, from Israel on Silicon Valley Bank, because a lot of Israeli startups are involved uh, at business there. So we're that already on Thursday morning, I'm getting bombarded with texts and tweets that something is happening. And then it's a game of, okay, you don't want to be last, right? You don't want to get stuck last. So people are starting to take out. And a bank is pretty much the only business that if all the clients say the bank is on fire, then it actually catches fire, right? And that's what happened. When enough people try to pull the money out, that's when the bank collapsed. So it's really, I think the herd mentality and the run of the bank, that's what undid those two institutions. Yeah. Is there anything that you think from a regulation standpoint that we could be doing different in this country? Because I've heard a lot of different conversations right now around this, and I'm not sure it is a regulation issue specifically because as you said, if you looked at the balance sheet, everything looked great, but then one text turns into 10 texts, which turns into a Twitter post. And now this thing has gone viral. I, I don't know how you stop that. And I'm just trying to understand from your point, very hard to say. I mean, I can say from my vantage point, we, we had a lot of money sitting at Signature Bank and Friday morning, we made a decision to pull it out. Uh, and we saw the news and the, and the tweets and everything on SVB at Friday morning. It, you know, the notion was 50% of the deposits will be available next week and the rest unknown, right? So when you see that, you say, okay, I better take my money out because I don't want to take that risk on 50%. It's a lot of money. I think if, if the announcement that came eventually Sunday evening would have been announced Friday, maybe Signature Bank would not have fallen, but that's a speculation. You know, it's would have, could have, should have. I actually think the regulator acted pretty fast. I mean, within two days, making the decision of, okay, deposits are secure, but shareholders were not, we're not being shareholders. I, I actually think it's, it's a very, I think it's the right approach. Um, uh, you buy a share of a bank, you take the risk. You have a deposit in the bank. It's a different story. And I think if they hadn't done that, we would have seen this week a complete run on the bank on all local and regional banks. And that would have been bad. So I think, I think the actions in general, you can always criticize, but I think in general, the actions taken, but at least for now, well, they seem okay to me.
Right, right. I generally tend to agree as well. Um, you're a man sitting on a boatload of cash right now in terms of a debt fund where you can go deploy this in commercial real estate assets. How are you seeing this from a business standpoint? Is this going to help your business? Does this hurt your business? What are your thoughts there? So the systemic risk obviously increased. So you have to be very careful now when you deploy capital into new deals because there is increased uncertainty. However, when we look at the fundamentals right now, we're seeing loans to better sponsors because banks have pulled back. So sponsors that would typically got a loan from a commercial large or mid-sized bank are now turning to private debt funds like ours. Uh, in general, we're seeing LTVs, we're providing lows at slightly lower LTVs, and we're seeing an increased rate, uh, both spread and, and the base. So more yield on what is perceived as less risk on the deal level seems like a great opportunity. It's almost feels like the golden age right now to be a private lender. However, back to what I said in the beginning of the sentence, there is increased systemic risk. So all, all the calculations on value, what is your loan to value? It's much tougher to estimate than an underwrite right now. You have to be much careful and you have to give yourself increased margin of safety. Agreed. Agreed. Um, there's two questions I want to ask. Uh, first is, what is your buy box? So when you have a uh, syndicator or operator coming to you looking for private debt, what, is, what are the type of loans that you're looking to uh, finance? So I would say 70% of our business is providing loans in New York City and, and the greater area of New York City. And it's predominantly on residential properties. About half our business there is, is condo inventory loans or completion to condo inventory. So the building might be complete or 70, 80% complete. We come in, we replace the construction lender uh, that for a myriad of reasons, you know, wants or needs to get out. Uh, we recapitalize the project, uh, provide the financing and time needed to complete and sell out and have, you know, I would say the emphasis is on have enough time to do the sellout. Uh, so that's about half our business. The other half is, you know, transitional bridge financing acquisition loans um, that require maybe faster execution or maybe there's slightly a little bit more complications relating to the property or the partnership. And we come in and we provide that solution. Our typical loan is these days is about 50 to $80 million in size. The largest loan we've done is uh, over 300. The smallest one we do is probably 10 or 15, um, one to three year term. So, you know, similar duration to many other private lenders, um, non-recourse typically, uh, usually there's, you know, completion guarantee or carry guarantee. Those are recourse, but the, typically it's the, the principle is non-recourse and, and rates are anywhere between software plus five to software plus eight. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I think you just answered my next question was how do how do you manage interest rate risk right now and not get too far onto the duration uh, the duration side of the curve? But um, with a one year to three year cycle or duration, I think you answered that there, right? So we we like short duration floating rate loans right now. We think you know the market is moving so fast, so having a short duration helps. Um, and the floating rate obviously helps, and uh, we encourage our bars to buy caps, although they're very expensive. And uh, and we always take an interest reserve that covers the interest for the duration of the loan. Uh, and when we take the interest reserve, we look at the, at the forward curve, and we size the reserve for the forward curve. So not just what the interest rate is today, but what the market is predicting it will be throughout the lifetime of the loan to make sure we that 
the sponsor doesn't have to suddenly come out of pocket uh, during the loan. But but it happens, you know, when rates increase so fast, it happens when the you know the interest reserve deplete is being depleted faster than than everybody predicted, and then uh, the sponsor needs to come up with additional cash to support the loan. Right? Are you are you doing loans right now with the interest rate? Yes, we're very that, now we're, we're very busy. We've we have you know four loans right now on the term sheet total combined size is a probably two two hundred fifty million. There's six more that we're underwriting. Now we're looking at loans out a lot in New York, but also Miami, now Philadelphia, Chicago, Houston, Dallas, the West Coast, uh, and so we're very active. Good, good. Well, part of uh, what I found interesting about you is your ability to adapt with times. So everything from buying distressed debt to ground up development to value add to assisted living to now in the private debt market. How are you viewing the next, I guess, five years and where does your compass pointing you beyond the debt side of the house? You know, we, we've evolved every few years because we, we tend to ask the same question, uh, which is, does it make sense? And when the answer becomes no, or I'm not sure, then we, we, we try to see what does make sense. So for example, as you said, started in distressed debt in 08, then shifted to more development deals in 2011. Then in 2014, that stopped making sense. So we shifted, it did more uh, value adding, producing multifamily in office. And in 2017, we basically stopped buying. We said it doesn't make sense anymore. We started lending. Um, these days, lending makes a whole lot of sense. And I think for the near future, that's what we're going to do. Um, we do invest in equity right now in, in senior housing and skilled nursing. We view that asset class as kind of a bit market agnostic, and it runs on completely different trends, uh, mostly demographic trends that are very unique. Um, and I do see us, I don't know if in the near future, but definitely in the next year or two, um, buying multifamily again. Uh, we think multifamily will be very interesting. Um, it's, you know, residential in general, slightly easier to underwrite than other asset classes. Uh, it's much tougher to disrupt it by technology like happened to retail or uh, to office. Uh, you know, people, they either rent or they buy. Those are the two options, unless they're homeless. So, um, and, and we see the trend now, uh, and, and certain markets in the U.S. have shortage of supply. So it's much easier to track the supply side than it is the demand side. The demand side shifts pretty fast. So when we underwrite a market, what makes sense? We start on the supply side. Okay, how many units are there now? How many are being built in the pipeline? Okay, and, and if the answer, okay, it seems like it's on the lower side, let's look at the demand, let's look at the growth drivers and... And, and then try to invest in that market. I can tell you right now, New York checks all those boxes. Nobody really built anything new in the last three years. All the projects that are being finished right now are projects that have been in the pipeline pre-COVID. Uh, you walk the streets of New York right now, you don't see, you barely see any cranes up in the air uh, versus other markets in the, in the US, South Florida, Texas, that are has seen robust creation of, of, of new supply. So I hope that answered your question. It's so interesting because I remember three years ago, people saying New York City was dead. And I just had in my thought process that it's such an iconic city, not only to the US, but to the world, that there's no way the city will die. People will always want to be there. And if you just halt construction for three years, that's going to put extreme supply constraints on that market. You're seeing it firsthand every day, it sounds like. We're seeing it. I mean, the last two years, rent increased in New York City over 20% year over year. Um, 
there is a sh- all-time shortage of, of condo units. There's under 4,000 units on the market. Pre-COVID, there were more than 8,000. So it's half the normal supply. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, too, that you said um, in the next couple of years. So maybe multifamily, not now, but in the next couple of years. I just recently got back from a conference that the theme was survive till 2025. If you're an operator right now, just survive until 2025 for a number of different reasons. But from your perspective, why do you think in the next couple of years is an opportune time for multifamily? There are a lot of deals that got done in the last two to three years at very low cap rates and very low interest rates. And and those deals currently, they're surviving, right? They're, they're pulling through, they have a cap or it's a fixed interest rate. And even though in theory, like what happened in Silicon Valley Bank, right, that long-term treasuries, as long as you don't sell, they're good. Once you sell, you realize that you, the value is impaired. So I think a lot of these deals, the value is impaired. And once they come to market, either for a refi or for sale, that will realize. Now, it's very hard to say where the market will be in the next two years, where interest rates will be. And my my feeling is that some of these deals, not all of them, but some of these will, will, will have to recap. Uh, those that won't be able to recap um, will have to sell at at at, at a loss, uh, or bring in rescue capital that effectively will create a loss for some of the equity holders, and 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 in some cases, some of the loans are impaired, where they're very high leveraged, so it could get pretty ugly. Um, but I'm not seeing the level of distress we had in 08. I think I think it's going to be case by case, market by market. I, I'm not sure it's going to be across the board. Uh, across, you know, there's going to be markets that are going to do very well. Yeah, I have a theory that tertiary markets, where you bought at a low cap rate on IO only payments for five years and didn't rate cap, uh, for instance, um, are going to get crushed. Bid big markets, mega city markets, Houston, Dallas, Nashville, New York City, uh, Miami are probably going to fare fine. You might see some price depreciation, but they're generally going to be fine over the long term because of the demand in that market. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, when cap rates in secondary markets, the delta between them and the price you paid, the cap rate you paid on a true A-class property in, in, a, in, a, in a major market when they're too close to each other, it doesn't make sense. And I think that's what happened in, in a lot of cases that, that you're referring to. Some somebody basically overpaid or bought a secondary market at a sub four cap rate or at a four cap rate and is not going to see the same rent growth. And, you know, when cap rates adjust and they are already adjusting, it, it's going to hit them. I mean, the first question I ask a new analyst when they join the company, before they join in their interview, I, t- I, I asked them, okay, what is a cap rate? And they all give me the, the regular response, right? The rate of return, blah, blah, blah. and ask them what it really means. What does a four cap mean? And I tell them it means 25 years. That's what it means. Unlevered, it's going to take you 25 years to get your investment back. And a three cap rate is 33 years. Unlevered to get your money back. And I told them that that's a very long time. And when, you, when people bought a three cap rate in the threes, those were the bets they were taking. Unlevered to see my money back in 33 years. Uh, doesn't make much sense, right? When you think about it that way. Right, right. The only part of your portfolio we haven't really touched on yet is this idea of assisted living or senior living. What do you like about that space right now? So we, we invest both in equity and, and on the debt side in that space. Uh, we obviously are big believers in, in the demographic trends. 
the aging population, baby boomers, it's going to take time. It's not instantly, suddenly there's this huge demand, but long-term we definitely see this trend. And we like the fact that it's not correlated to other aspects of our business. Uh, and when you underwrite the operator well, which is probably the most important thing. And when you underwrite, uh, the assets quantity, it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, we have certain investments that, you know, we're financing acquisitions post COVID to very large companies. Uh, they're buying it at very good prices and at 70% occupancy, there's positive coverage, positive debt coverage. And, and we feel we're in a very good place in the capital stack. Uh, we, we gave loans on about 86 properties, uh, in the last year and a half, uh, that, that amounts to over 9,000 units in the space, uh, from Oregon, Ohio, Connecticut, uh, Florida. And uh, so certain markets, certain states where the, also the regulatory environment on the Medicaid side is favorable. We, we invest in those markets. When you're looking at an equity investment in that asset class, is that a longer term view for you? Yes. Seven, 10, 15 years, maybe. I would say seven to 10. Okay. Okay. Um, anything about your portfolio that we haven't touched on? I felt like we've gone through the gamut here, but I'm going to make sure that we, uh, didn't miss an opportunity. I mean, you know, if you looked at the firm four years ago, uh, sorry, more than that, uh, six years ago, you'd have seen 1.3 million square feet of office buildings that we owned in, in New York city. You've seen multifamily assets, you've, you would see development sites still. And, you know, now we basically own zero. We sold all the office holdings. Um, the last major trade we did, we, we sold seven Hanover square, which we bought in 27, we signed the contract to buy in 2017 and we sold it in December 21 to a, to a German bank. So we bought it for 300 million, renovated it, sold it for 850 million together with our partners, uh, Goral family and PPG. Um, it was, I think one of the last large trades of office buildings in the city. Um, and you know, when we back in mid 21, we didn't think about selling it yet. Uh, and when we got this unsolicited offer, we had this discussion. We said, you know what, we're hitting our, our numbers. It's, it's what we thought we would get three years from now. Okay. We feel comfortable selling in hindsight, you know, hindsight, it seems like the best decision ever. Um, and you know, I've learned long ago that somebody offers you a good price, take it, you know, you never lose money by making money, right? right. And, and living something, you know, living something on the table and, 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 you know, that, that, that building I should say was fully occupied about 25 year leases to the SEC and New York health and hospital. So very high quality tenants and, and long-term leases. So the buyer is going to be fine. You know, they're, they're, they have, the building is fully leased for 25 years. Uh, but I'm still, I'm very proud of that execution. It was the right timing. Kind of all the stars were aligned in that aspect. I, I'm pulling a bearish theme from office. And if I had to view one market as being office resistance to this, uh, work from home trend that we're seeing right now, it would be New York. How are you viewing office space right now? Actually, New York is not that resistant. I think and work from home is still pretty prevalent. I think we're seeing only about 50% usage in office and it, it, it all has to do with the strong, uh, employment market, 
meaning they're the, the low unemployment rates. So if you ask almost any CEO, he will tell you, listen, I would prefer have my team in the office five days a week, but I can't. Uh, you know, if I tell them come five days a week, I'm going to lose people. They're going to say, no, I'm not coming. So I think that will change when we see some weakness in, in the employment market. Uh, and I think eventually the office market will be back and it will find a new equilibrium, uh, but it's going to take time. Uh, and until that happens, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of hurt, uh, especially on, on class B older office pr like product that, that, that is less desired these days. Doesn't have a dog park on four, seven and three being jab chairs and things like that. And you see firms, you see firms taking less space in, 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 in a class buildings, paying more per square foot, but taking, you know, overall less square footage. Um, and I think the next year and a half are going to be very, very tough. And, you know, some office buildings will get converted to resi that will help to alleviate, you know, the supply side, but not all of them can, and not all of them will. So, so eventually yeah, there's going to be a lot of the vacancy definitely in the near future and everything that's happening right now, not helping. You're also a guy that likes to give back. Through my research, I've seen a number of different causes that you uh, focus on and, and give your time to. Do you care to just talk a little bit about those causes for a second? Sure. So I'm, I'm a veteran. Uh, so uh, the first organization I'm involved with is, is American Friends of Naptal. Naptal is an organization that helps um, anyone that's suffering from PTSD, basically acts, you know, tra trauma from acts of, of war and terrorism. Um, you know, after the Parkland shooting in, in Florida, uh, teams of Natal spoke with the teachers there and staff members, and it's obviously to work with, with veterans, they work with first responders, and it's just a great organization that I'm, I've been on the board of for the last five years and, and just an amazing cause. Yeah. Well, I'm going to switch us now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Honestly, my favorite group book has been one I read when I was a kid, Master and Commander, you know, about the, the Napoleon uh, Maritime Wars. And, you know, I've always been uh, driven to the ocean and everything sailing related. And, you know, I eventually went to the Navy. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm an ocean guy. How old were you when you read that? I was uh, 14, I think. Wow. And then a few, a few years later, the movie came out with Russell Crowe. Yeah, yeah. But there's an actual... I old book series <laughs> our second one is i believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day what are some of the habits that you have i wake up pretty early uh you know i work out i, I encourage my kids to join me and we sometimes do you know work out together at you know four to six six a.m you know i drive my kids to school every day uh, get to the office in time but only after i drop my kids at kids at school and you know, start with a team meeting. We go over uh, everything that we're planning this day, but we try to keep it short and efficient. Um, and I uh, I work hard, but I'm home every day uh, in time for dinner. And then, you know, reading a story and putting the... Our third one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, don't work too hard or you won't have enough time left to make money. Yeah. And it, it sounds funny at first, but then when you realize it, you know, sometimes you're so busy and grinding and, and focusing on, on the small details where you don't have, you need the time to lift your head and look up and think big picture and understand, you know, what it is that you're really doing and doesn't make sense. And, and I took that advice to heart and 
I do work hard, but, but I try to, to give myself enough time to actually brainstorm and think and, and see, does it make sense? And, and what's our next move? And I think it's very important to do that. Yeah. I suffer from the productivity tax, right? You want to knock out your checklist and feels good to check off something, but it might not be the best and highest use of your time. Yeah. Some of, some of the wealthiest people I know haven't worked that hard, but they just made very good decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Our fourth one is what are you most proud of in your life? My family, definitely my three kids, my wife, um, you know, it's the most important thing. How old are your kids? Uh, five, seven, and 11. I have a boy and two girls. Great age. Great age. Well, if our last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? It's very easy. My grandfather, he passed away when I was 18, very close to him and, you know, miss him every day. Now I know your dad was a general. Was he a military guy as well? Yes. He was a sniper. Oh, wow. Okay. Back in uh, World War II. Well, Ron, fantastic conversation. Uh, appreciate a lot of your insights from everything from office to senior living to the debt markets and banking crisis we're seeing right now. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you or learn more about Northwind, where's the best place we could point them? LinkedIn. I answer. If anybody writes me on LinkedIn, I answer and happy to connect. Perfect. We'll leave that in the show notes. And then Ron, thanks for coming on. Perfect. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.